All right, well, this morning we are going to be starting a, a series coming through uh, Advent. And so uh, we've mentioned this before a, a few times since I've been here. We've done an Advent series, and many of you grew up in a tradition where um, you celebrated Advent every year, and, and many of you didn't. And so Advent is just a season of, of waiting that we um, anticipate the coming of Jesus. And so the next four weeks, uh, we are going to be walking, um, walking through some prayers uh, that, that have been, that, that people earlier in the faith have, have uh, come up with, and just thinking through what does it look like for us as Christians today um, to wait on the Lord. So let's, let's pray together as we, join, as we begin. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning, bring focus, God, to our minds and to our hearts as we pursue you. And God, we have worshipped you today through greeting one another and through singing and through prayer and through the hearing of your word. And God, now I pray that you would uh, you just turn our attention to uh, just considering who you are and all that you have done and who we are because of it. God, give us, give us minds to think clearly about these things. Give us hearts that would love your word. And God, give us the strength to obey and follow you and trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thomas Cranmer was uh, an English reformer. He lived back in the 1500s, and he was actually the first Protestant uh, archbishop in, in England. And so when the whole Reformation was happening, uh, he, as a young man, started to be kind of uh, interested in these teachings from Martin Luther, and so much so that he, along with a, a group of other men, including Tyndale, um, had, had this little group that they were actually called Little Germany, um, because they were so intrigued by these teachings of being saved by grace alone and this turning back to scripture and trusting in, in scripture to, as the revelation of who God is. And he was, he was known as he became actually a reformer and became the archbishop. His big uh, aim was to get the word of God into um, the hands of common people in their common language. So his desire, which wasn't done up until that time, his desire, um, his heart's desire was to say, we need to get this into people's hands. And so for, um, he was the first one to get English um, Bibles into the churches in England. And even with that, he also, though, knew that a lot of the people in England at that time were illiterate. And so he created readings and um, eventually uh, what, what we know is the Book of Common Prayer. And he did that to put that into churches so that people would hear the word of God every day and they could center together as a church family and, and consider the things of, of who God is. He would eventually be martyred and burned at the stake for, for his faith. Such were his convictions. And that book of common prayer is still relevant today, 500 years later. You may have grown up in a tradition that um, relied heavily on it. But most of us have experienced some part of it. The phrases that we get a lot of times, uh, a lot of our wedding vows come from the book of Common Prayer. The idea of to love and cherish one another or um, till death do us part. Um, also, if you've been to a graveside service, you've likely heard um, phrases that all come from the book of Common Prayer. And in this book, he has a set of prayers for Advent. And as we were reading them, we've just found them inspiring and encouraging as we enter what is uh, clearly a very unique Advent season here in 2020. 
I just want to read, I'm going to have it up on the screen, I'm going to read this prayer from Thomas Cranmer. It says, Almighty God, give us peace, that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light, now in the time of this mortal life, in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when we shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. It's interesting that the first week, he lays out for the first week of Advent that he wanted the churches in England to, to pray, that he starts with a prayer that looks forward to the second coming. And that may feel a little strange for us. It's, it's easy in, in the Christmas season to just let a, a feeling of nostalgia just kind of wash over us, right? Like, it's easy to look back. It's just how we're kind of wired in this. It's easy to look back at, at past memories as a child, reliving traditions, and of course, looking back to the incarnation when God became flesh and dwelt among us. And all of that is a wonderful gift. And, and where our focus um, should be, back looking at the incarnation and how Jesus came to earth. But when you think about it, it makes total sense that before embarking on that, that we would begin with the end in mind. That it would make sense to be reminded that as we celebrate Advent, this waiting season, and as we celebrate Christmas, that we would do so not just as a remembrance of something that happened 2,000 years ago, but something that we are looking forward to again when Christ returns. That first waiting 2,000 years ago points to our waiting today. It's a second waiting for the second coming. And so I want to start us at the end as we begin this season of Advent and ask, what are we waiting for? And what does that mean for us? How are we to wait? And, and what, is, what does it look like to wait, both as ones who are remembering the people of God waiting for the Messiah to come, but also as the people of God today waiting for the Messiah to return? There's a lot of debate over this whole idea of the second coming of Jesus. Lots of, lots of debate within the church about how that will work and timelines. But what I want to do is I want to focus on the things that all Christians who believe in the authority and the truth of Scripture that we all believe and all agree on. I mean, when Jesus came to the earth 2,000 years ago, it was done in humility and meekly, and it was done kind of under the radar. And those same debates were happening then of, is this the Messiah? Is it not? And what does that mean? And most often, the arguments that, that took place around that were around the details of how all of that was supposed to happen. And so because of that, they, they hardened, many people hardened their hearts because they had this predisposed idea of what they thought was supposed to happen when the Messiah came and missed Jesus, as we've talked about in the last few weeks. But in the second coming, we know that there's a little bit more clarity. There's not clarity in those details. We have, uh, we have disagreements over that. But there's clarity in the fact that when Jesus comes back, there won't be any doubt. As Wayne Grudem, uh, a, a well-known 
and trusted theologian says, all Christians can agree that Jesus, when he returns, it will be visibly, bodily, and suddenly. It's visibly and that there won't be any questions. Like from time to time, people um, claim to be the second coming. We've seen that happen even in my lifetime where people claim, um, where people have claimed to be Jesus in the second coming, but we don't believe it because the Bible is clear that when Jesus returns, there will be no doubt that he won't come meekly and humbly in a manger, but rather from the heavens with trumpets sounding. And, and it, the, the bottom line in Scripture, whether there are the literal things or the metaphorical things, is that nobody's going to wonder if this is Jesus. We also know he'll come bodily, that it's not a metaphorical return. It's not a revival of the Spirit of Christ. It is Jesus in the flesh. And that it will come suddenly. That we don't know when it will happen. So we shouldn't guess. It's clear right now, during this time, there's a lot of talk of saying, well, surely now. With everything that is happening in the world, surely now. And I just want us to pause and to remember that every generation has thought, surely now. And rightly so, when you look back on it, right? I, mean, I was just having a conversation about those, those of you who were uh, alive and well and an and adult through the 60s know that there was all kinds of talk about that. Like surely now, it seemed that the world was, was coming to an end. If you were around during World War II with the, um, with the atomic bombs and things like, how could you not think that with the, a world war that scale that, that the time wasn't drawing near? It was imminent. But Jesus is clear that we don't know that it will happen suddenly. He said it will come at the hour actually that you least expect. That you don't know when it will be. And he says even he doesn't know. When he says concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And so we know that Jesus will return and it will be obvious and visible. It will be him in his body. And we know it will happen suddenly. And the response for us is not to try to guess when that will happen. The response is just to be ready, to be on guard, to be awake. And so many times in the New Testament, we're told to be ready. But the question is, how? How, how are we to be ready? Even as we wait in this Advent season, how, how, what does that look like to be ready? And the answer, I think, is relatively simple. Doing the work that he has given us to do. By following his instructions that he's given us when he left. In the book of Luke, Jesus is talking to his disciples about this very thing and about his foreshadowing, his second coming. And he gives a, a parable about being ready. And afterwards, Peter said to him, Lord, are you, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. 
But as the servant, if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Now that's an interesting passage, right? Like I mean, we can all just sit there and look at that and go, wait, wait, wait a second. Like cut into pieces? Like severe beatings and light beatings? This is where we need to understand, like, how do we read the Bible and understand this is a parable, that Jesus is illustrating a point. And the point he's making is he's talking to people who would understand that, hey, look, if the master left instructions for his servant and then went away, and then those servants, in thinking like, well, he's been gone a long time, I'm not really going to worry about it right now, and just goes about abusing the people that that the master left in, in their charge, Jesus is asking them, what do you think is going to happen when that master comes back when they're not expecting it and finds them disobeying him? And they would have filled in those blanks. They would have said horrible things. And so Jesus is just making the point of, well, then what would you expect from God? And he ends with that idea of everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much they will demand more. People, people try to figure out like, okay, well, what's the light beating and what's the severe beating? Like, that's not the point. The point is that Jesus is saying, like, the more you understand, the more you know about this, the more you're, you're held accountable to what you understand and what you know. Like, I'm held accountable at a different level than what a five-year-old is held accountable for. And so what's clear from all these passages that we get lost in all these details of like, well, what does that mean about when this is going to happen and how it's going to happen is the, is the common theme that we are to be ready. And that we have been left instructions and work to do. And we are accountable to do that work and that when our master returns, he should find us doing the work that he gave us to do. And so what's important about that, even right now, today, is that our waiting is an active waiting. It's not a passive waiting. So many want to hide from the world as things get harder and harder. It's a temptation. It's a temptation to just withdraw and try to isolate ourselves more and more from the world, to go kind of running for the hills and just waiting and hunkering down until Jesus returns. But that is not the call of the Christian. We have been given work to do, work to be faithful towards. If we understand that, then that should impact how we wait. It should actually make us as Christians more engaged with the culture, not less. Because we believe that all of this belongs to God and that there's going to come a day where Jesus is going to return And he will establish fully the kingdom that he came at once and and established in part. Because he's bringing this work to completion, the work that he started. And so it's less like a prison break where we're escaping this world and more 
like we are waiting on our king who will come and redeem the land. And so if we're doing that actively, we are going to be engaged in the culture, and we would do it eagerly. We talked last week about reorienting our lives around the kingdom and around the gospel. That's, that's because we know he's returning. Like, we should be eager to just move everything in our lives and reorient it around the work of the kingdom that we know is coming fully. You know, when we moved to Wisconsin five years ago, we took our time in getting here. We just kind of turned it into a road trip. We thought we've got a gap here in, in responsibilities. Let's, let's just stop and, and see some things along the way. And so we experienced virtually everything there is to experience in South Dakota, as if that's possible. Um, we camped along the way. We, we visited sites. We enjoyed those things. But there was also this feeling of eagerness to get here and to get settled. Like it was very, it was very, we were very aware, especially Lauren and I were very aware that that travel time was very temporary. That there's this feeling of, okay, we're enjoying these gifts right now, but we want to get to where we know we're going to be and to get settled. We were under no illusion that that road and that journey was our final destination. I mean, imagine if we'd arrived here and you found out that we had and and taking advantage of that opportunity and wanting to just live life to the fullest as we traveled from from Colorado to here, that we exhausted all of our life savings. We spent it all on airbrushed t-shirts and, you know, tourist traps and just kind of did the whole thing. You'd look at that as foolish. And we got here and we're like, you know what? We have no more savings. We can't really even put a deposit down in an apartment or a house or anything like that. It would be foolish. Because we would have exhausted everything and given everything for something that was incredibly temporary. And so, yes, we should, we should enjoy that journey and, and receive the gifts that God gives us along the way, but always with an eagerness, longing for the kingdom to come. An eagerness to orient our lives around that kingdom. To seek first the kingdom of God, because that's where we're headed That's where we will be for eternity. That's where we will settle. That is our home. So what I want to do is I just want to, for the second half of this, I want to just clearly look at what is Jesus actually accomplishing in that second second coming? What does that home look like? What happens there when Jesus returns? And so if we are to be found doing the work of our master— while he is away, before he returns, then it would be important to know what is that work? What is he doing? And this is not all, this is not an exhaustive list, but these are the things that I think are important for us this morning. First, we know that what he's accomplishing in the second coming is he will come to judge the living and the dead. Matthew 25 Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And Peter says this in Acts 10, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. 
To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Those without Christ at the second coming will be eternally separated from God in hell. I know that that is a hard topic and there's a lot of just discomfort around that, so I wanted to state that as clearly as possible. Because it is true. And Jesus actually talks about this a lot. This is not just some kind of Old Testament idea that the New Testament writers didn't talk about at all. They talked about it a lot. And a lot of people, I think our problem is a lot of people get this image or this picture of this God, this just angry God who sends good people who are just doing the best they can, kicking and screaming to an eternity of torture. But that's not actually what the Bible teaches. You see, God is essentially giving humanity what it has longed for since the garden. Life apart from God. Like since the garden, the sin of humanity has been to say to God, you are not God I don't need you. I am God of my own life. And what hell is, is God after generation, after generation, after generation of calling people back to himself. It is him saying, okay, and giving people exactly what they have been asking for for millennia. Tim Keller puts it this way, that there's nobody in hell who didn't choose to go there and choose to stay there. He talks about hell being locked from the inside. It's this very strange idea. It's not the idea that, oh, well, they would open it up and leave. It's because they don't ever want to. They've been given over to their passions and their desires and just being given over to their desire to be void of God. And what's so sad to me is that people don't realize That every good thing in their life is because of God. It is common grace that here on earth, every good thing, whether that person is a believer in Jesus or not, every good thing that exists here on earth is a gift of common grace from our Father in heaven. So every healthy baby that is born and every celebratory wedding and every, every um, vacation that people enjoy and every, every good gift, every incredible meal, everything is here as a glimpse of what the kingdom is, of what the kingdom is every day. And the, the opposite is true, that every pain and every hurt And every evil thing that has happened on this earth is a glimpse of what an eternity looks like in full when it is without God. And God, in his kindness, gives us these glimpses every single day. Every single day, he is saying to all of his creation, this is what life is like in eternity with me, and this is what eternity looks like without me. And in his kindness, he waits and waits to pass judgment, giving us this glimpse. I've said this before, but people ask so often, why do so many bad things happen to good people? 
And the question that I've always thought in response to that is it, that if you believe in, in final judgment and if you believe in perfect justice, then the question is why do so many good things happen to evil people? Like, that's the question I'm left with all the time. God, why do you give me so many blessings? Like, why, why, have you, why do you bless me day to day? Why is the norm of my life blessing? You ever think about that? Like, that is the norm of our life. The norm is, that's why the, the hard things seem so hard and they shake us so much is because our normal day-to-day life is actually blessing. The fact that we're all just sitting here, breathing and, and listening and able to, to function in all those ways are just like, there's innumerable blessings just right here. God's judgment is not, it's not anger uncontrolled. It's not unfair. It's actually the most fair and most just thing that we've ever experienced. And it is actually his mercy that he gives grace upon grace upon grace to a rebellious people. And that he waits and waits. But one day Jesus will return. And when he does, he will judge the living and the dead. And it should remind us then of that work that we are to be doing. So part of our waiting in this is considering our own eternity. Considering, have I really placed my trust in the giver of all good things, or do I just live my life for those gifts? Do I understand that they are all pointing to a God who created all things and created it to be good and created us to be in right relationship with him and in harmony, but that it was our rebellion that separated us from him? And that rather than just letting us go and, and calling down destruction on us immediately, which would have been absolutely just, He sent Jesus to live the life that we couldn't live and die the death that we deserved and to secure for us an eternity that we don't earn and don't deserve and yet he has given it to us. As we wait, we should consider that. And if that is true, then what does that mean about who I serve and why I exist? Do I live as though he is actually the king? Or do I live as though he is just an advisor in my life? Or a lucky charm? So it should remind us in, in a way that we, as we wait, that we would consider ourselves as we look around the brokenness of the world, that we would wait realizing that that brokenness is from me. And the second thing that it reminds us as we're waiting is that we would preach the message, this message of reconciliation and the gospel to others. Paul says to Timothy in giving him these instructions, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. By the way, if you hear that passage and you immediately think of how other people are wandering, I would caution you to reconsider. 
When we read this passage, our first question should be, am I wandering away into silly myths? Am I buying into things that are not of God? And then we should have a commitment to preaching the word of God. To reprove and rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching, not as a nagging parent who just keeps just pointing out all the wrong things that are being done, but as a loving shepherd, those who give care for the flock. And that is the responsibility of all of us to care for one another in this way. So if you are in Christ, your waiting should be marked by the work that we have been given to declare and demonstrate the good news of Jesus Christ in our own hearts and in the people around us and the people in the world. That was the longest one. Needs the most time to unpack. Second work that he does is creation. When Jesus returns, he will establish a new heavens and a new earth. It says, um, John writes in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now there are debates over, does this mean that, that God is going to create a brand new heaven and a brand new earth from scratch and everything else is, is gone? Or, or is it in the sense of us being a new creation and he's going to renew it and redeem it? I mean, I tend to lean towards the latter because the Bible talks about the new heavens and the new earth much like it talks about us as a new creation. And so it talks about us passing away. The old has passed away. The new has come. Like that's how he talks about us as a new creation. And we know that we don't, we're not physically dying. We don't become, uh, we're, not, we're not just a completely like, okay, well, all of Jay is just completely gone. And now there's this completely um, new person that could be named Paul. And it doesn't matter. It's just a completely different person. No, that's not how we see new creation. That, that our flesh has died and been put to death. But that the J that God created in his image will be redeemed through Jesus and will be fully what God intended me to be. And so I I believe that that same language applies to the heavens and the earth. But it's okay if you don't believe that. It's okay if you don't agree with me on that. Because ultimately, it doesn't really matter. Because either way, it's going to be awesome. That's the big point. The new heavens and the new earth whether it's a redeemed version, whether we're going to have the Rocky Mountains in their redeemed glory and our ability to enjoy them in their redeemed glory, or there's going to be the Smocky Mountains and they're just like, it's this new thing that's kind of like that. Like, either way, it's going to be amazing. You can quote me on Smocky Mountains. It's dangerous. It's going to be unbelievable. Just think about that. Just think about being able to explore all of creation that God has created here and the beauty, those glimpses of what the kingdom is going to be like and that we're actually going to be able to enjoy that with no limits on money or time or energy. A physical place that we will dwell in our physical bodies but not our current broken down bodies. I mean, imagine all the people and how that world and that new heavens, that new earth will function. That there won't be anyone who is in need. No one hungry, no one fatherless, no one alone, no pandemics, no masks, none of it. And if that's what we're waiting for, if that's what we're longing for and we're thinking about, well then how would we participate in it as we wait? 
Do we just go off into a corner and say, well, it doesn't matter, you know, it's all going to burn anyway, or whatever's going to happen is going to happen, and Jesus is going to come back, so I'm just going to hang out here in the corner and play video games until he comes back. Like, no, that's what he warns us against. We are to participate in the work that he is coming back to do. We are stewards of this creation. From the beginning, that's been our work. In the garden, that was our work. And that will be our work in the new heavens, and the new earth. So it should be our work now. It matters. I mean, imagine if my dad had a beautiful classic car. And as I turned 16, I was like, Dad, I would love, I want that car so badly. I want to drive that around. I think it would be amazing. Now, if he was a responsible parent, he might say, okay, but first I want you to take care of this beater car. I've got an old Dodge Datsun here. I want you to drive around. If you know what that is, then you are old like me. That's awesome. And I want, you, I, want you, I want you to drive that. You need to practice on that because I'm not just going to hand you this 57 Chevy like while you're not dealing with this, okay? And imagine that after a year, he comes back and he looks at this Dodge Datsun and he finds it to be even more rusted than it was to begin with. No maintenance done on it. Bald tires and a trashed interior. And if he says, what, what did you do? And what if my response is, well, I knew you were going to throw it in the junkyard anyway. Like, why do, why do I care what happens to that? Like, that's the car I want. This doesn't have any value. Is he giving me that classic car? Jesus in Matthew 25 says he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Church, we should not be apathetic about all the work God has given us to do which, yes, includes declaring the good news of Jesus Christ, the message of salvation, but it also includes being stewards of his creation, ambassadors of our king. It's why things like the environment matter to us. It's why things like justice in the world matters. It's why feeding the hungry matters. It's because it's not just a pathway to do other things, but it's because this is the work of the kingdom where justice reigns, where no one is hungry, where all of creation is redeemed and beautiful and cared for. That is the work of the kingdom. And when our master returns, he should find us doing his work. And the last work that he has us, or that he does is glorification. And again, this is not an exhaustive list, but is the glorification of ourselves. And that just simply means we will no longer be infected by sin, physically, spiritually, mentally. 
Yes. I mean, just imagine what it would be like and what it will be like where every thought that comes into your mind is pure. Where every action you and I do is holy. Every desire you and I feel will be good and right. And every word that you and I speak to one another will be done in love and truth. I mean, isn't that unbelievable to consider that? Like that's what the kingdom will be like. And by the way, it doesn't mean that we're stagnant. I used to think like, okay, well then, like, all right, so then won't that get boring? Won't it get boring? Like we're all, we're all perfect. Like at some point, I have a really good friend in my life who is just constantly encouraging. That's all he ever says is they're encouraging things. And after a while, I'm kind of like, okay, here comes the encouragement. Like how depraved am I that I would look at somebody who's always encouraging and be like, boring, right? But that's kind of how we get like with, each, with one another. And, but then I think about this and say, well, just because we'll be without sin doesn't mean that we will be stagnant in our growth. It just means it'll be unhindered by our sin. Like we'll still grow. Like God is still God and we will still be human. We will never exhaust the knowledge of God. We will never exhaust the experience of God. It means we will never have two days that are the same. We will never have a day without an aha moment as to the height and depth and width of God's love through Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? And we have glimpses now, right? Like we have glimpses of these things, moments where our desires are, are pure, moments where, where we speak the perfect word of encouragement to someone, moments where our relationships are being experienced truly as a gift, moments where we have that kind of aha moment, where we see God's love in a new light. But one day, it will only be those moments, forever and increasingly. And all of that is because of the rule of Christ, because we'll be in perfect submission to him and we will see things clearly as he is our king. And of course, it's not like that yet. But that is the way of the kingdom, and so that is to be our way here. That is how we wait. In the kingdom, when Jesus returns, our, part of our work will be to grow in our love of God and our love of others, because we will continue to grow in that. And so that is our work that our master should find us doing right now. When we just were in Colossians, and way back in Colossians 1, Paul says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's our work, to walk in the identity that's been secured for us on the cross and will fully be handed to us when Jesus comes again. There will come a day where we will seek God fully and love others purely. And today, we get to work that out. Today, we get to walk in that and be about that. And I know that for many of us, that feels like an eternity of waiting. Like I can feel so slow and take so long and so we wait for it with patience. I mean, it felt, imagine the patience of God's people waiting for the Messiah to come for thousands of years. 
The psalmist says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. I am not unaware of the hard roads that many in this church have been asked to walk. We have people who are crippled with physical illness, mental illness, depression, broken relationships, abusive pasts, abusive presence. And whenever I am in those situations with people and praying with them, this psalm comes to my mind. God, how long? How long will you have this person wait in this situation? How long before you deliver them? But even that psalmist says in the very next verse, but, verse, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The idea that God turns all of our mourning into dancing, all of our sorrow into joy, is not done by just, hey, forget about all those things. He actually redeems them. And our joy will be that much deeper and richer for the trials that we have faced. And so don't grow weary. Don't give up. If you are in a situation right now, and right now I'm speaking to people who know what I'm talking about, that you are in a situation where you say, I don't know how much longer I can wait like this. Don't give up. Don't quit. He is coming. And he will redeem every hurt. Do not grow weary. And for all of us, do not grow weary in doing good. Paul says in Galatians 6, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap, will from it, from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those for the household of faith. The end is sure. Our God is patient. Do not grow weary in doing good. Don't be tempted to go into a world that the world is trying to lure the church into division and grumbling and complaining. Don't buy into it. Do not grow weary in doing good. Let us do good to everyone. Let us overcome evil with good. Because eventually, as we continue in that work, eventually our Jesus is returning. That he has come back, he was coming back to establish his kingdom fully that we have been experiencing glimpses of. And so as you wait this Advent, celebrate 
by all means, celebrate the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago. In the next few weeks, we'll be focusing on that and what the incarnation means in our lives, but also consider what it means as we await his return. Let's pray. Father, we do wait for you. We wait, God, for Jesus to return again, and we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But God, we know that you are the only one that knows the hour. God, please protect us from wandering away from what you have called us to, which is to be about the work that you have given us. To be about the work of the kingdom. To declare and demonstrate the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and hurting world. To be stewards of all of your creation. And to be transformed by the Holy Spirit into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. To walk in a manner worthy of our calling. These are things that will continue on in the kingdom as we declare your goodness for all eternity as we enjoy all of your creation and all of your gifts for all eternity. And as we grow in our understanding of your love and your grace and your kindness, and as we are given power to understand what is the height and the depth and the width of your love in Jesus Christ, Strengthen us, Lord, as we wait. Let us not grow weary. Let us endure until you come again. Amen.